I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Like many of you, I read through the book Factfulness when it first burst on the scene last year. Since then, it's turned into a New York Times bestseller, and it's been translated into dozens of languages. Along the way, Bill Gates called it one of the most important books he's ever read, an indispensable guide to thinking clearly about the world. And to prove it, he's even committed to gifting all college graduates a free, downloadable version of the book. For those of you who don't know it, Factfulness is a fascinating run-through of how our own instincts, biases in the media, and increasing amounts of data often prevent us from understanding the complexity of the world and appreciating the trajectory of human, societal, and economic progress. No, it's not an indictment about the fake news, but it is a refreshing reminder for why we need to continually challenge our powers of awareness and perception. But it also got me thinking about what a framework for factfulness would look like in the context of climate change. In other words, could a different approach, a more representational approach, much like how Hans Rosling illustrated the global improvement in life expectancy, literacy, and poverty, could that approach cut through the politicization and noise of climate change? How could this kind of factfulness, this understanding as a source of mental peace, how could it balance the need for action against the urgency of Greta Thunberg's activism and the fear imbued in each new IPCC report. It's why I'm excited to have our next guest, Anna Rosling Rundlin, on the show. She not only talks about the fundamental ingredients to a fact-based worldview, but also about the work on climate change that the Gapminder Foundation is now focused on. Anna is co-author of Factfulness alongside Hans and Ola Rosling. In 2005, Anna co-founded Gapminder, whose mission statement is to fight devastating ignorance with a fact-based worldview that everyone can understand. Anna also founded Dollar Street, the biggest systematic image bank with representative home documentations based on data. Welcome to the show, Anna. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Great. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, before we go into uh, the questions, I want to ask about your background. It's, it's really interesting to me because it really sits at this intersection between your origins as an artist, uh, the social sciences, and your interest in software and data. Mm-hmm. So talk about how that arc developed. Well, when I was a kid, I was dreaming about becoming an artist. But I was also interested in psychology and society and stuff. So I started early on uh, by actually aiming for, for um, arts. I had no clue whatsoever to work on data, honestly. So I, I'm not a data geek to start with. <laughs> but what happened was that I met my husband, Ola, pretty early. We met when we were 16. He was also into arts stuff, just like me. But his father, Hans Rosling, he always talked about issues he had in his work life. Usually it was like visually oriented, trying to explain the world to his students by using visualizations, and they were not very beautiful. So basically, without thinking, we started to improve whatever he showed us because it was interesting, important, and it could be further visually improved. Gradually, we started inventing uh, software programs and started working on data on big scale. So it was never intended. It just happened. 
Let's start by describing what a fact-based worldview, as the book touches on. What is that and why is it so important? Well, I mean, it's not very complicated. What is new today is that we are actually having a lot of statistics and facts around. If we go back to 20, 40 years, it would be hard to find. Either the data was not collected at all or it was hidden in drawers in big organizations and stuff. Now we have the data freely available almost everywhere online, so we can find public data, but we need to use it. And what we have done at Gapminder is that we've started testing fact questions about the world around us, and it turns out that humans usually scores worse than random on these questions. So we have the data, but we don't really use it effectively. Hmm. So why do so many conventionally smart people get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be wonderful to have the perfect answer. But I do think it has something to do with um, highly intelligent, highly educated people would assume that they know things because they are analytical and smart, right? The problem is on several different areas, I think. One is that we tend to stick to information we learned at one point in time. But when it comes to the world, it will change. So the information itself might have changed since we learned it, even though it was correct then. Then I think we also have the bias that our brains are sort of deluded by a lot of preconceived ideas we have about the world around us. And those are actually driving our thinking in the wrong direction very often. And since we don't have a tradition as human species of actually having the data freely available at our fingertips, we don't really have the skill set of actually looking for information. And when we do, we often look for just one single number. We don't look for the context because it's pretty hard to find the overviews and the general pictures and the sort of worldview, we can find, we can look for a certain number, get it and be happy. But we didn't learn anything about the trends, the proportions and those things that we would have needed to actually have an analytical tool that we could use further on. Hmm. Give me an example. And I could be, you know, when you were at Google or Gapminder or Dollar Street, but what would be an example of the sheer complexity or abundance of data and how it can be reduced to some more transparent, simple form? So, I mean, one thing that we've noticed over the years is uh, for people to understand the data, we need to visualize it. And usually we need to look at the trends over time and see the proportions over time. And that is something we have to do on a more regular basis. I remember actually uh, an anecdote from uh, that I think is pretty interesting when it comes to data and the previous culture that we're now walking away from. There was a guy we met who just recently had started working in one of the big organizations in the world. And he was an economist and he came to work at his new workplace and he was going to have a presentation for his new colleagues. And what he did was that he started showing these, they were all economists, and he started showing them slides. There were charts visualizing the data they were working on. And what happened was that a few of the men in the room actually stood up and walked out in the middle of the presentation. And he couldn't get why. So he started talking to the others. What happened and why did these guys leave the room? turns out that they were used to work on data in tables. And when he showed them the charts, they got humiliated that he thought they couldn't read a table decently enough, right? So we always have these kinds of shifts, I think, when we have to adopt to the new way of doing things. 
And I mean, historically, we didn't have the data available at all. Now we have it. We have a literate population, but we're not data literate yet. So we do need to find ways of working on it. And I would say in the book, we are showing a few examples where we're trying to visualize and make the world easier to understand. But it's a starting point and it's a whole societal shift, I would say, a whole knowledge culture that has to adopt to these new circumstances. And one of the key aspects to do that, I would say, is that we start to realize that we're blocked by overestimating what we do know. So we're basically ignorant about our own ignorance. And when we're ignorant about our own ignorance, there is no need to learn anything because we think we already know. I mean, one thing is to understand the facts about the world, which I think is important, but it's also important to be humble and curious and realize that we humans have some ways of thinking that might not be constructive for really understanding the world around us. Mm. And we can do things to improve the way we think. One pushback against the book is that you're a bit selective in terms of the data you use. I mean, one example, for instance, is on the climate side where clearly there's been a decline in, in oil spills. Um, However, there certainly has been an uptick in a lot of other areas in terms of rising sea levels or or threats to biodiversity or acidification or plastics. How do you find that balance, you know, when you start using those examples? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a methodology that we have developed. And when we wrote the book, we were pretty early on on that. Mm. So uh, the book has 13 fact questions from a little bit, uh, some different areas, trying to to cover some different aspects of the global world around us. Since we wrote the book, we have uh, been actually creating almost 2,000 new questions in different areas that we are testing regularly to actually see thematically what people seem to have the biggest misconceptions around what topics and around what parts in those topics are the sort of worst of. I would say we're now trying to scan for a lot of misconceptions in a lot of different areas. So one of the things when it comes to climate that we're doing practically now, we have a this word I can almost never say in English, but I give it a try. (laughs) Meteorologist, sort of weather guy. Meteorologist. (laughs) You see, I I can't say it. But basically, we have a researcher that we're working with and what we do now is that we we go through the whole IPCC report row by row and put every single fact statement in an Excel sheet and go through each and one of them to see how solid is this piece of fact? Is it something that most of them agree on? How sure can we be about it? And we're trying to test and see what do people know or not know about it. So we're trying to actually go through the whole um, the whole climate area from that aspect. And then we're just in the beginning. So I cannot really say uh, disclose any results. What we're looking for is where we find the biggest misconceptions between the sort of uh, what we know about climate, what the researchers agree upon, what is the biggest difference from that to what people think about the environment? And when we, when we see that and, and sort of have that covered, then we will start thinking about what needs to be explained so that people can understand what's going on better. 
And unfortunately, we have a history of, of doing that in, in some different areas, especially demography and health and economy and education and so forth. But we haven't really done it in, in any environmental area to any bigger extent. And we also have to learn. Mm-hmm. And it is a slow process. And it's always hard. We have tried to stay away from a lot of things that are uh, predictions into the future. Forecasts are pretty tricky. So we have to be very careful, but we will try to figure out how we can, what gaps are there between these two obvious, what the researchers agree upon as a group, and what the general public seems to be uh, most wrong about. And then we will from there try to figure out if we can do anything to bridge the gap, but we haven't really done it. We're just beginning. When you think about this area relative to other areas that you've looked at, and, and you think about the size of that gap. Yes. I mean, would you characterize it as sort of a bigger misalignment or bigger gap versus other areas simply because it's so increasingly and sadly politicized? So I don't dare to answer that because we're early on. Um, But I do think I do think that there are a lot of things. I mean, we hear so much in the in the news about climate. So I think most people agree that something is going on. Mm. It might be bad in the future. We need to do things now. But I would also think that most people don't have a background in actually understanding com- complex systems such as the whole climate thing, what is actually going on, and what are actually the biggest, you know, making proportions on things, mm-hmm. right? So um, what we usually try to do at Gapminder is try to figure out ways of talking about these very hot topics without using the politicized phrasings because as soon as we do that people jump into their ideological mm-hmm. <laughs> you know thinking immediately so for instance when we talk about men and women we usually do not talk about gender we usually talk about women if it is about a question about women we talk about women because no one is using that as a phrase it's a neutral word so what we're going to say when we talk about climate, I'm not quite sure yet. But we try to see if we can talk about it without using highly academic language that no one understands and without using the framing that either side of the political spectra is already using. Yeah, I think this is where factfulness and the work you've done can really add a lot of light particularly through this framework, because it touches on a lot of the biases that you point out within the book. And particularly, it seems like fear and urgency are two big ones. Um, One of the things in the book that resonated with me, or I thought was really interesting, was within the chapter around fear. And how do you use that or not use that to frame climate change? Even over the last 30 days, I did sort of uh, an accounting of just the news you know, in this area that I've run into. And it's yeah. it's Hurricane Dorian and what happened to the Bahamas. It is Greta Thunberg, you know, and her activism in New York. It's, uh, uh, you know, the Amazon on fire. It's another IPCC report coming out. And the Swiss, I think a few days ago, just commemorated the death of the first glacier to climate. So, I mean, you're right, something yeah. is happening, but how do you treat it in a way that isn't clouded by your biases? I think it's very, very hard to start with, because as soon as we try to do that, we have to be very careful. And I think the only way forward I can imagine is trying to be fact-based, 
sort of scientific and boring in a sense when it comes to the content, but doing it in a way that people can understand. And I mean, covering that whole area, it's pretty tough. <laughs> Because as soon as you start using the vocabulary, and if you speak to people's fear, I would be afraid that people are not always making the best decisions when they are fear-driven. We want to resonate with analytical minds to make the best efforts possible. And usually that needs to remove a bit of the fear, I think. We have a tendency where, where a lot of causes are competing over people's attention by using fear. Why we should care about their causes because fear, 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 fear. And then someone else comes and, and try to show that their cause is even worse. And you have these competing sectors. I'm just afraid when it comes to highly important questions like the climate or refugee crisis or whatever, that if we're not talking in a structured, fact-based, strategic way, that people might stop listening. And it's very expensive also to use all these communication money on actually creating sort of glossy fear-driven campaigns. So I think there is a risk that people stop caring because you can see this is another, you know, that you basically just clump it into a bucket of one more of these fear-driven stories and then you just do nothing. Mm. And I, I have to say that among my friends, there is a lot of people who are extremely, extremely stressed about the environment, of course. But I've heard last year, I think it's three of my close friends whose kids have actually, you know, been sitting during dinner crying about the end of the world. And I'm just thinking that for a whole new generation growing up, I don't think that is a very constructive way of dealing with it. Because if something is going to end in a catastrophe, then you can as well sit and binge watch Netflix series until while the earth is sort of... <laughs> That's probably not the most constructive. And they, they are suffering in many ways while they are sort of waiting for the catastrophe to happen. I would think it's more constructive if we look at the data and figure out what are the most effective ways we can do things to actually prevent this. And I mean, people are talking about it, but when we have this dystopia, I'm afraid that we're losing a lot of talents mm. that would actually have been the ones who would drive the change. No, it's fascinating. To, and it's not just fear-based, right? It's also that urgency. And yeah. I guess the problem that I and a lot of others have is how do you calibrate urgency in this respect? Um, the language in which we characterize it is changing intentionally. Sometimes David Wallace Wells uh, uh, made that point when he wrote about this. Um, you know, and, and in your book, I, I, I do get the measured approach about this. But I also wonder, as a counter-argument, mm. uh, you know, this book that came out probably about 20 years ago when I was a kid living in San Francisco, it was Andy Grove who used to be CEO of Intel. And, you know, his phrase was always, only the paranoid survive, right? Yeah, I don't know how, how <laughs> correct that would be, but maybe on an individual level, the paranoid are the only ones surviving in a way, right? We are uh, trying to be paranoid about the data we use. Uh, mm. making sure that we are using pretty reliable data and stuff. I think we have our share of paranoia, but I wonder if paranoia is the best way as a group solving a problem, uh, as a bigger group like humanity, how do we solve this? 
I'm not sure paranoia will work as a <laughs> I'd agree with you as there. a factor. So yeah. <laughs> How much of your research time now is climate or environmental issues now starting to take up um, relative to maybe social issues? Ah, uh, good question. A much bigger portion than it used to be, because obviously we need to address it. And honestly, to be frank, we want to understand it ourselves. And it's very complex. So it has to start there, right? By us actually understanding what's going on. That's a good question how much time it takes now. But I would say it's only for the last year we have had someone working on it totally focused on just the climate questions. So that's a new thing, right? Mm. But as a focus for the whole foundation, the Gapminder Foundation, mm. we are doing a lot of different things in parallel where climate is one and it's competing with a lot of other social and economic and health related issues. But it's taking a bigger portion. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating because I'm obviously aware of how you visualize a lot of this data through Gapminder and, and Dollar mm. Street uh, around social issues. And I imagine there's probably a pretty powerful place to do that within the climate discussion. But just to stay on the language issue, because that's mm. really interesting. And how do you sort of create a new sort of lexicon for mm. this in a way that's not politicized? One of my last guests, Alice Hill, who worked within the Obama White House and the National Security Council, she made this really interesting point that resilience, mm. as neutral and as blah as that sounds, is, is, is a very useful she called it effectively a safe word, mm. <laughs> which is which is sort of a, an interesting characterization yeah. for politicians on both aisles, on both sides of the aisle in the U.S. to discuss climate change. And it sort of supports the idea that the questions that you ask really need to be well thought through in terms of how the questions are framed. Yes, I think you're totally correct. I mean, how we phrase things is very crucial. And how we visualize them when we realize what needs to be visualized is also very crucial. I mean, it's so important. And, and we have a history of being pretty good, I would say, at actually explaining complex things in a way that looks ridiculously simple. But it has taken quite a long time. I, I mean, it's embarrassing how much time it takes to, <laughs> to develop the simplest things, right? So I would imagine that moving into thinking more about issues of climate and environmental issues that we haven't spent as much time on in our history, because, I mean, we came from a background of social sciences and Hans from the medical side and, and public health and so on. So, I mean, we have gradually expanded our thinking and our field to include more and more things. But actually understanding them, we cannot explain things without understanding them. And it's it's pretty big systems that we need to understand ourselves. So I bet this time to get the proper phrasing and to get the proper illustrations, it will probably be far too slow this time as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have a history of working extremely fast, even though we try. Yeah. But yeah. it it sounds like much the same setup that, that brought you together with Olin and Hans many years ago. In other words, he was very focused on health and, and many of these social science issues. And he was having a lot of problems expressing yeah. what that meant, yes. um, the gaps, etc., visually. 
And in the same way, there are an increasing amount of climate-related data. Clearly, despite some great attempts, there is a problem translating that into a relatable way that resonates with people. And so it seems like you know, something that, that is very ripe for what you're doing. I mean, basically, the, the reason why I can relax, even though I don't really fully understand the climate yet, and we, we haven't really tested what people know yet, and we haven't really done the visualizations or made the phrasings for the climate either. So it's a lot of work remaining before we can actually educate anyone in a decent way, uh, unfortunately. But we, we are working on it. And I think that the relaxing thing here is that I do truly believe that people need this information that we are going for. So even though we're too slow, I think many people will relax when they start finding information that they do understand that is neutral and sort of consensus from the research community. Because I think there is a risk now when we have a lot of people being highly engaged really want to see a change when it comes to climate i'm afraid that they will burn out before they really get the chance to change things for real so i mean they what they are doing is important and someone has to go first and make sure that it gets on top of the agendas and they're doing that now but i'm thinking the same people should be full of facts and there should be a reasonable next step where they truly can make difference on a big scale. Because otherwise there is a risk that they are very, very eager and active and then they don't really get what is the best next step. And then who knows, maybe someone else comes with another cause that seems easier to solve or uh, heartwarming. And there is a risk that we lose people because I think it's important that we take it seriously and and then we have to make sure that people have the facts available i mean it's no rocket science at all we need to understand the basic facts and today it's pretty hard i would say yeah when you look at dollar street mm -hmm. dollar street's really interesting because it helps you understand um, in the context of many different cultures and economies the world um, progress economic progress but it also helps you understand or sort of draw these commonalities between cultures and around the world. What would a Dollar Street version look like? And by the way, it's worth sort of describing what Dollar Street is for the audience. But what would an equivalent of Dollar Street look like that was maybe climate related? Good question. I think what is important to understand the climate is to understand that it is actually everyday life that it's all about. So I, I would say... Dollar Street has to show everyday life of today. It can never show the future as it's photo-based. <laughs> so per definition, it, it has to, to stay here and cannot go into the forecast mode, I would say. But it could eventually put some efforts maybe into explaining the differences in different choices of the homes. And I think Dollar Street can do one important thing. It's that usually when we talk about the world around us, when we talk about the environmental impact we have, it's very easy to sit up in the richest end of the world and sort of blame the poorer ones for doing bad environmental decisions. But I think maybe a framework like Dollar Street can help us to understand that the amount of problem we cause with our lifestyles 
are usually huge up in the richer end of the world, basically where where you and I sit right now. (laughs) And they are not as big, even though you can see bad habits in poorer areas, you still have people that are sort of moving. Their dream is to come to a lifestyle like ours. So I think it all starts with us starting to behave better and figure out what are the best solutions for the richest billion of the world, trying to solve that. Because when we look forward, it seems like most likely we will have a lot of people coming closer to our lifestyle. And then we should have it sort of set so we have something to offer, like coming here and actually (laughs) being a good example, I would say, rather than blaming the poorer. I think that is an important takeaway that you could probably use Dollar Street for already today. So Dollar Street, by the way, I mean, it's it's a project where we have been looking at everyday life at different income levels all over the world. So it's based on a very simple concept where you can think about the world as a street where you have the poorest to the left and the richest to the right and everyone else somewhere in between. And then we sort of jump into on that street we visit homes on different income levels, basically different households on the street, you could say. And then systematically, we look at everything they have in the household, like every function a home has, like where do people sleep? Where do they eat? What kind of toilet? What kind of shower do they have? And so forth. And we look at approximately 137 things, I think it is. So then we create a website that is free for anyone to use, where we can uh, browse through this imagery and see all beds that we have collected so far ordered by income or we can see uh, pets or whatever we're looking at but just to get an idea about the world by everyday life on different income levels roughly so that is the project and we have sent out photographers we have about 350 homes from 50 plus countries as of today But it's a community project, so anyone can actually join and bring in their homes, too. (laughs) Wow, it sounds like a big project. (laughs) It's going to go on for a long time, I think. Yes. Um, What change have you detected as you go around and discuss the book, the work with with people at conferences, um, and you normalize it for the people that, that, you know, that have already read your book, right? Mm. But is there any kind of growing improvement or recognition of progress or change around the world? Or is it fairly static? Or are we kind of going backwards if we're not sort of nudged or pushed to recognize what's taking place? I would say very often it seems like, I mean, this is a very non-scientific approach now, but, <laughs> but from what I've seen, very often I think most people are driven by a far more negative worldview than what we can see in the data. I mean, of course, there are a lot of bad things going on. We have a lot of catastrophes. We have a lot of political issues. We have people being afraid of reasonable environmental causes that that are pretty in pretty bad shape. So we have a lot of bad things going on. And I think they are correct there. But what happens is, on an everyday basis, we seldom talk about the slow progresses of the world. Our brain is full of negative stuff that we've heard about, and it's sort of blank of slow progress that we haven't thought about, that we take for granted. So I think sometimes when I present the contents of the book and and sort of show what we've been working on, you can see people being a bit relieved, not ignoring the bad things going on, but, but still 
remind them that there are actually a lot of things that humans have managed to improve on over time. Giving people, I think, a small glimpse of hope that hopefully we can do it in more areas to come as well. It's usually slower than we're hoping, and it's usually frustrating trying to change things and improving over time, but it's happening now and then. So sometimes when people are saying, no, but it was, it's not better than it used to be, it was, it's just getting worse. We, we hear it quite often anyway, some people who are thinking that we're overly optimistic or something. But then usually I, I used to tell them that, so go to a doctor that uses, you know, the medical skills and tools they used 30 years ago. Would you do that? And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly yeah. in many areas, things are happening, but we're not really paying attention. Yeah. Sometimes people call us optimists, which happens very often. There, You are so optimistic, they're saying. And I think that is a bit ridiculous because we like to think ourselves as being data-driven, trying to see what people are getting wrong and trying to figure out how we can explain that to actually remove, to fix their ignorance, basically. And if people would be wrong about all the negative stuff going on in the world, and if they would be correct about all the positive stuff, then we would have focused on how we could fix all the negative stuff that they were getting wrong. But now when we're testing uh, our fact questions, because we have a set of about 2,000 fact questions we're working on at the moment and testing regularly, weekly on audiences in a systematic way to figure out what, where people are mostly wrong, what we have seen is that many people are wrong about positive changes because they haven't really noticed and they are wrong about a lot of, lot of different areas. And they are usually pretty right about things getting worse. So I think the getting worse part is, is sort of part of our mindset and our way of thinking. So there we haven't been focusing much because it seems like they get that pretty right. And that's why we're focusing on the areas where they are negative while there has been a lot of positive improvement. But then people are saying, so you're so optimistic, which I think is ridiculous. But <laughs> <laughs> When you meet that kind of resistance from, yeah. from people, is it ignorance in the sense of, you know, the root word of ignore? Are they ignoring the facts or is it misinformation or, or are they uninformed? I would say uninformed in that sense. In Swedish, we can actually not really translate the word ignorance because we have a much thinner definition, which is a very bad one, which says that they are basically pretty stupid, okay. you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but ignorant in the way that we, we don't have the information. We, we're blank in a way, right? We're just sort of trying to guess yeah. and that kind of ignorance. But I would say the real problem is that we're unaware of our own ignorance. We think we know. And that's the problem, because we, we think we have the information. We think we know what climate is. We think we know something about what's going on in the world. But when we start testing people, it seems like that's not the case. Mm. So we need to change the way we see ourselves, I think, and be more humble and curious and, and know that we're very often wrong where we think we are right. So this show usually isn't a self-help show no but but i'm i'm really tempted to ask is there one or two things that all of us can do to to sort of remind ourselves to stay humble and open and be aware of of these biases how do you do it what's the secret <laughs> <laughs> the secret has been 15 years of frustration trying to focus on the facts alone 
And then when we started adding, actually testing what people knew so we could see what is the most reasonable things to talk about and try to fix. And on top of that, actually trying to help people to think a little bit smarter, like a statistical thinking kind of. But that sounds so dull and boring and hopeless. So we have packaged it into 10 rules of thumb that we want to give to people so that they can sort of compensate for their overdramatic thinking. So, I mean, roughly, you could say whenever you hear a story that is gap-driven and you hear about the outliers and how they are fighting or poor, rich, happy, happy, sad, you know, whatever things are conflicting and, and fighting, very often we focus on the two outliers. But every time you see that, you should remind yourself with a simple thought that is, to understand the world, I need to focus on the majority that is in between these two extremes, because the extremes can never make me understand the world. I can understand this particular conflict, but it doesn't help me to understand the world. Those kinds of very practical hands-on thoughts that we can start thinking actively every single time we're exposed to all these situations where we, if we leave our brain to digest it freely it will most likely lead to very sort of bad ways of packaging the information in the brain, even though every single piece might be correct. But it's a biased information to start with. And I think also it's important to remember that I think that most journalists actually got the job because they want to make a difference and do something good. And I think they are usually trying their best to do that. And then there are circumstances and so on. Of course, it's I mean, you have a range from super good to more shady, right? <laughs> but I, I think it's important to remember that it is hard to actually, on short time, give people the full picture. And even if you did that, it's hard to have people being interested unless it's very juicy and catastrophic in whatever you, you're consuming. So people are story-driven individuals who love horrible stories because it's fascinating. But to understand the world, most of the things that are going on are not very dramatic at all. And to understand what's going on in the world, we need something besides the news. And we need to compensate for the extraordinary stories we hear in the news. And if we learn everything perfectly at one point in time, the world will change. So we cannot rely on learning everything by heart at a certain point in time either. So I would say to understand the world around us, we do need to find habits of actually checking facts before talking and finding habits of actually compensating for the way our brain loves to consume cheesy stories <laughs> and sort of try to balance them. So last question. A large part of the audience is students, mm. um, and I'm always asked what advice would I give students, um, and I'd like to ask this question to, to guests as well, because it sort of reflects the accumulation of, of all your experience. For people, students specifically, interested in looking at social sciences, at, at many of the issues that a lot of the data and the book uh, discuss, what advice would you give them? Oh, it's a, it's a very big question. So let's see if I manage to answer it all. But I, Besides I, buying the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I would say, to start with, I mean, for the world, I think it's important that a lot of people actually invest time 
and interest in trying to make the world a decent place for all of us. To do that, we have to make some choices what to go for. And I think the first one is it's probably worth to investigate what will have the biggest impact to start with. Because if we are going to invest a lot of time and a lot of efforts and a lot of passion into something, we probably prefer to see that we're, we're actually contributing to something that will have a big impact for history, right? And I think very often we're trying to take shortcuts. So we're trying to do minor things that we can see immediately. And then we're happy in the moment. It's like candy, you know, it's really lovely when you're chewing it, but then you start regretting that you did it. And I think it's about the same here. To actually make a big difference in a positive way, most likely we have sometimes to choose the more boring ways to get a long-lasting change. But then we would be happier at the end. But I, I think it's important also to remember that if we choose something where we're not passionate, most likely we will not have the energy to do it for long. So I think the number one advice to a student would be to find an area where you're highly passionate and learn a lot about that and see how you can make the most in that area. I, th I think that is probably the case. And, and looking at the world the future of the world, I think it's very easy when we think about sustainability. We want to run to places that are already branded sustainable, but who knows, it might be in completely different areas we can make the biggest difference. Maybe it is in the legal system we can make the biggest adjustments, and then it's not branded as sustainability anywhere, but that might be the way forward. Or we might uh, make the biggest difference in the biggest organizations, or being a politician, or changing the way an industry is manufacturing something. I mean, there are a lot of areas, and I would guess the biggest differences we will make in areas that are not branded by the sort of corporate social responsibility sustainability team, because that those words will change every five to ten years, what the commercial sector is sort of focusing on and write in the yearly report. So I think it's more important to change in all different areas, not necessarily branded as sustainability topics. Yeah. Got it. That's great advice to end on. So, uh, look, it's been fascinating to unpack what factfulness means, our biases that often prevent us from better understanding the complexity of the world and appreciating the trajectory of human, societal, and economic progress. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Mangroom, here today with Anna Rosling Rodland, co-author of Factfulness, a book about how to build a fact-based worldview. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks very much, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes. <laughs>